Hello and welcome. You are listening to the Property and Business Series on the Investor Lab. My name is Goose. And I'm Charlie. And we are so absolutely phenomenally delighted to welcome you back. We've been getting so many good uh, reviews, reports, um, you know, generally good vibes from people that have been enjoying this. It's been absolutely enriching to know that we're having an impact on uh, the broader business, but even just the business community, the investor community as well. What do you think about that, Charlie? Yeah, I'm enjoying the fulfillment side of it. Just the amount of people that I think are now questioning what they thought was normal uh, mm. in the world for them in this arena has been really, really exciting. Yeah, I think so too. So I'm going to say we, we went on a little bit of a ramble on this one, but not in a really weird, not in a, not in a useless or nonsensical or, or invaluable way, but just in a way that seems to happen when we get on a conversation together that will start in one place with an idea to go in one direction and we'll end up really delving into some other really, really interesting stuff. We started out talking about sort of kind of future planning and all of that kind of stuff. And then we ended up talking about why cash flow is more important for business owners. Man, we covered, we really went in a lot of different directions though. What else did we cover? You know, the thing I would encapsulate this episode with is just how much we seem to be challenging what is normal for business owners. It's Mm. how many different ideas and opportunities open themselves up. And without giving away what's in the episode, I think you shared an incredibly powerful thought about just how different the game is for someone who's uh, potentially saving $1,000 a month versus a business owner that might have a lot more capital contributions and just what they can do. And I think that's what, for me, was one of the highlights. But on top of that, not to steal the intro here, it really highlighted the idea of financial reporting for your portfolio and to treat it more like a business with a P&L and a budget and so many things which I think become incredibly imperative at this stage. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I mean, yeah, there's a definitely a lot to unpack here. You know, we talked about how really, really kind of we're, we associated the different stages of business with the different stages of where different things might fit in with the portfolio as well. And I think it's super impactful. It doesn't really matter whether you're you know, just starting a business or you've got a fully established business, whether you're a lifestyle entrepreneur or an enterprise entrepreneur, or even just whether you're not even a business owner. Like This is going to be super valuable to think about because what it does is actually challenge some of the status quo around how to think about our portfolio structuring and planning and all of that kind of stuff. So if you've got any interest in building a property portfolio that's actually going to give you a degree of freedom and autonomy and you know all of that kind of stuff that you probably want to build a property portfolio for, then, and then regardless of whether you own a business or not, I know that this is going to be a super valuable episode. Um, and as ever... If you enjoy it, you know, make sure you let us know because we're really, really enjoying the feedback. It's um, giving us a lot of fuel to keep this going as long as it keeps bringing value. So without any further ado, let's get stuck into it. And of course, if you want to find out more, by the way, just before we jump into it, if you want to find out more, if you want to get access to free resources, guides, tools, if you want to get a copy of my book, which uh, I highly recommend for anyone, I think it's great for you know anyone who's interested in property, particularly early phase, to get the mindset right, understand the mechanics and understand what the mechanics are to build the right type of portfolio, then just head to theinvestorlab.com.au. There's all good stuff there. We give heaps of stuff away to empower more real estate entrepreneurs just like you to achieve greater levels of success. And of course, if you do want our help uh, here at Dashdot, we can help you do that too on a one-to-one basis. And you can contact us through theinvestorlab.com.au as well. So head there, check it out. And of course, if you like it, subscribe, share this with a friend and let us know. But without any further ado, Charlie, let's get stuck into it.
Hey guys, welcome back to another fantastic and exciting and enthralling and scintillating episode of the Property and Business Series on the Investor Lab. Charlie, how are you today? Excellent. This is without a doubt the highlight of my week now. I look forward to these conversations so much just because of the feedback we've been getting. So to all the people that have reached out or said yep. something or just told me and Goose that you've enjoyed the series, I just want to say thank you so much. I'm incredibly uh, grateful for it. And keep doing it because we get really pumped up. You know, we're always sharing little messages that we've gotten with each other. Going, oh, check out this. This person said this. And it's, um, it's very exciting to uh, get the feedback, no, mostly not because it not because it feeds an ego, but it's really powerful to get the feedback because the feedback is generally about how much it is helping people. And for me, and I'm sure for you as well, Charlie, it is it is so enriching to get checkpoints in the day of people just saying, you really helped me with a problem, you really helped me solve something. And that's really what this is all about is helping people to you know advance and to accelerate their position and to live a better life. So it's uh, I'm loving it. Yeah, absolutely. And like I, more than anything, I want business owners to retire well. Um, I mm. look at, uh, for example, my own parents and like they worked very, very hard for a very, very long time and didn't necessarily see the rewards from business that they probably could have if they'd questioned other things. And I think that's going to be the sad majority of business owners. They won't yep. retire well. They might have a good lifestyle now or live a bit beyond their means, but that end game just doesn't look great for them. No, I, I totally wholeheartedly uh, agree with that. You know, like, and as someone who has essentially been in business and, you know, to varying degrees of efficacy over the last, you know, nearly 20 years, you know, pretty much never paid myself any superannuation and, you know, was sort of living on a, in a cash flow environment and doing heaps of cool stuff. Um, but yeah, without actually really, really planning for what the future holds. There's not really much of a support network there. And it's certainly certainly not something that's at the forefront of most business owners and entrepreneurs' minds because, you know, yes, a lot of business owners do think long-term and have long-term strategies and stuff like that. However, it is like people generally still live very much in the near field of what's happening now. And, and you know, when, when they're in a position to start thinking about, okay, how to actually really start planning for the long term, but how, how to actually apply that in, in a way that's going to benefit them now can actually be really, really tricky. And I think that it's um, more than ever important, as particularly as we're in a, in a day and age in society where more people are breaking out of the workforce in general and deciding they want to pursue their own ideas and start their own businesses. We see business failure rates are, you know, all as ever, as high as, high as ever. And now more than ever, people are choosing to to, to be the masters of their, of their own destiny, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're creating the right safety networks for themselves. Well, I want to ask a bigger question here. From a, from a business point of view, I don't want to make this about property, although we will definitely go there in this sense. What do you see happening on the back of, we'll call it the year of 2020 with so much change and so many things? How do you think business will adapt, change, prosper, or destroy itself going forward? What do you see on the horizon? It's a really good question. That is a really good question. I think um, I think we're in an age of pop entrepreneurship, okay? And so I think that what has happened and is happening is that more and more people uh, like the idea of business. They like the they they potentially had a little bit more freedom from their normal workplace, and they're going. Actually, I have an idea, and I can turn that into an economic. Um, an economic input in my life in some way. I'm going to turn that. I'm going to turn this idea into a business. The problem, the problem with that is that there's a lot of material out there that is telling people or helping people to turn your ideas into cash. 
And that's inspiring a lot of people to cut the ripcord on some other more traditional ways of earning money, i.e. a job and stuff like that, to pursue these kind of passion projects, which is great. However, there's not a lot of people talking about business acumen. So what I see happening happening is a lot of people putting painting themselves into a corner of purely being a lifestyle entrepreneur, essentially having like a being a self-employed a self-employed business owner, which is totally fine and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But the, but the only downside with that is that you're unlikely to create the necessary buffers and structures and systems and build the requisite team and get to the requisite you know, revenue size to create enough stability to give you the kind of abundance that you're probably really seeking. You're probably Everyone's got this idea of like, I'm going to turn my idea into cash and I'm going to live it a life and it's all going to be fantastic because I've heard the, the stories of people doing that really fast, but they're the outliers. And so I think it's on the one hand, absolutely fabulous and fantastic and phenomenal to see so many people going, you know what? I'm going to choose how I'm going to run my life and I'm going to go do that. And I, I applaud it. I absolutely applaud it and I celebrate it and encourage it. But we also need to, need to think about, okay, well, how do we encourage people to have uh, a better sense of business acumen? And how do we encourage people to start thinking not just about how do I get to you know a couple of grand a few grand a month in revenue for my coaching business or whatever the case may be but how do i actually start creating systems structures and infrastructure for the long term so i can actually achieve those those long-term wealth goals interesting very interesting i I must admit i i share the idea and will agree with that i think we're going to see more business than ever started i think a lot of people that thought they had security in jobs and they are realizing they don't and then mm. perhaps in companies where the writing's on the wall, they're not going to be here forever. Yeah. Like they're just not set up right. I would say if I was going to put an Australian spin on it, I'm, I'm really disappointed that as a country we don't invest enough in innovative companies or companies that may take on the world. Like if you look at our ASX, our stock market, most of the companies are dinosaurs. They're not doing anything exciting. When you compare that to like the States where it's like Facebook, Google, TikToks, Teslas, like it's all these companies that are doing truly exponential things with so much more growth potential that are leading to prosperity. And I would say China's probably in that same category with a lot of the technology companies they work Mm -hmm. in. Australia just doesn't seem to match that. And I think it's the way uh, we invest in those startups. But to your point, I'm going to be really, really fascinated to see this whole change. I think there's so much change and I think change is a really good thing. I know it can be unsettling, but I think change is where the opportunities come from. And I'll just share a quick couple of examples before we go here. Um, I have a friend who I won't name who may hear this podcast, but they were in the blind industry. They were making blinds, like house blinds, um, and they've completely rejigged their factory to make medical masks. Mm. And, like, they've gone from this, I would say, smaller business to this juggernaut. Like, it's absolutely crazy because of this change, but because they were adaptable and good business acumen, to your point, it's like they're thriving, and I just look at that and go, "That's just magic." I love those stories. Yeah, totally. I, an example of my, you know, my previous world and industry was in events and music festivals and stuff like that. And there was a company, and I actually will name them. Uh, their name's uh, Stage Kings, and Jeremy, Jeremy, and the team there are phenomenal. They did this amazing turnaround. They've been, they've been in loads of media and met the prime minister and all of this kind of stuff because they run a staging company. Guess what happens when? 
guess what happens when festivals and events get closed down because of coronavirus? So they flipped it around and started using all of their equipment to make uh, home office furniture and all of this kind of stuff. Ended up distribution networks all around Australia, employing event workers to do this. And they've turned, have created a whole other industry and have completely turned around. It's been one of the best uh, success stories that I've heard come out of the whole this whole period. It's fantastic. How awesome. I love that we both got one we didn't know about and it wasn't pre-scripted at all, but it just... Yeah. I'm such a believer that on the other side of this, there's so much prosperity and like really we should be all very, very optimistic. The human race is uh, notorious for pulling things off to have made it this far in general. And I Mm. think that I cannot see this changing. I really cannot see this changing. But Goose, fascinating conversation. But what I would love to dig in today, and we've got a a bit of a list here um, based on just little conversations we've had throughout the last couple of weeks and ideas and so many uh, different ones. Yeah. And, and where I want to start things off today is on a comment you made uh, to me earlier this morning about really why business owners look at this so differently and have different levers to pull when it comes to um, investing in general, but particularly in the property arena. So mm. I, I really want to dig deeper into that and, and I hope you know the comment I'm leaning into here so I don't have to say it because I think it'd be better if you capture it. <laughs> What is in like why cash flow is more important for business owners? Absolutely. Yeah. So, and it's a really interesting, it's a really interesting, um, this may be slightly controversial. So, if you're listening to this, I want you to, I want you to walk with me on this because it's something that I've been pondering deeply uh, for a little while. Now, it is my impassioned belief that uh, building a portfolio that focuses solely on cash flow and not on growth is a fool's errand. You know, the, the value of compounding growth, uh, you know, is tremendous. You know, it's, it's, you know, the eighth wonder of the eighth wonder of the world and all of that kind of stuff. You can't really fight the awesome power of compounding growth. But one of the reasons that I think that growth is so important, particularly in the early phases of a portfolio is because for the average person, this, it, the compound growth in a property will far exceed the average savings rate of the average person. So, for example, if the, the average, I think the average Australian only saves about $1,000 a month. So, that's $12,000 a year. I mean, you don't have to even get that much capital growth in a property that is not even that expensive to beat that savings rate. And so, for most people, the generation of capital is actually the hardest part, getting the deposits. You know, we always, particularly when we're starting out, and particularly when we're younger, it's like, oh, getting the deposit is the hardest part. Getting the first one is the hardest part. But that continuous generation of capital is, is kind of genu- genuinely the biggest hurdle for most people. However, it's also one of the biggest mistakes that people make. And one of the biggest, and, and the reason for that is that if you focus purely just on growth and don't focus on cash flow and liquidity, you're not going to be able to use that and you'll, you'll, create, liability, you'll create a liability structure. Because you'll, you know, you won't have the ability to access that that capital or that equity. Nonetheless, though, th- this is where the dance has to play has to come into play. So the premise of the Holy Trinity, which is our th- core three pin- principles, you know, cash flow, growth, and the ability to add value, and then layering it over, we've kind of talked about structure uh, in the previous couple of episodes. You know, foundation, acceleration, and legacy. The idea of the foundation stage is to capture assets which get really good capital growth. So you get capitalist acceleration, which is the most important thing for uh, you know, 90% of the population. And also do it in a way that you have cash flow that will allow you to use that equity so that you can then take that and then put it into more, more interesting assets, typically higher cash flow assets. But here's the thing. For business owners, 
the average saving savings rate or the average ability to get capital or to contribute cash or any of that kind of stuff is a lot more than a thousand dollars a month. So that completely changes the dynamic around what can or even potentially should be the priority for business owners. How interesting. Let's break that down for a little bit. I'm curious about this. I might even search average savings rate of Australians. Well, I just did that. And so in 2018, the estimated average amount savers are putting away is $862 a month. Okay, so if you if you are the average Australian and you're trying to uh, play the game of property, if you were only going to use your own capital, so maybe you're a nine to fiver. I'm not saying I'm not against having a job. I think it's great for a lot of people. But if you're we in both, that world, we both have employees, right? People, work, we both have employees. Jobs are totally fine, right? So absolutely. Yeah. I, see, I will say that I strongly dislike when business owners become like uh, prejudiced vegans when they push their oh, review stupid. on other people and make others feel less than because they didn't. This this life isn't for everyone. I like I know I'm not employable. This is my only option. So <laughs> <laughs> but um let's go back to this from here. What was that average savings amount? Eight hundred and something per Eight, month. Eight hundred and sixty two a month. I'm gonna be generous and give them nine hundred and we're gonna times that by twelve. If you're contributing, it's a, we'll say $11,000 to a portfolio per year, how long is it going to take you to get a deposit to buy something you would say is investor-worthy? And I know that's a broad question, but I'm kind of looking at this, it would take you five years at least. Yeah, it's, it's going to be roughly that. So the, 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 the other side of that, of course, is if you buy a $300,000 house and even only get 5% growth, you will have gained $15,000, right? So the most effective way for people to get ahead in the early stage is to save as much as they can and also invest in assets which are going to get, you know, 5% or more preferably of capital growth, but then also do it in a way that they don't they don't end up with a cash flow liability. Because if you imagine if you invest in, if you go, if you can only save a thousand or even $2,000 a month, right? And you go and invest in properties, but then they have a cash flow liability attached to them, even if it's just rates and property management, but if it's cash flow liability, that has a doom loop effect on your savings rate. Okay. So therefore you might be able to save 2000 a month in the first run and then 1800 a month in the second run and, and it gets progressively smaller. And so you can save less and you get, and it gets slower. So there's a, there's a real challenge there. Yeah, not not yeah. to mention that would destroy your borrowing capacity as well. Correct. Just, so you get stuck straight away. And I, I can understand this. This is like, if you are that person, you really have to seek growth as the only way to keep going. Like it is your lane to do things. Growth with cash flow, like that's the, it's just never, it's never just growth. In fact, I'll, I'll go out on a limb here and I'm going to say something which may be controversial. Controversial. The only way that you can completely break your portfolio and completely stuff up your property journey is to only chase growth. You know, if you buy something because you're like, it's going to grow and I'm going to get all this capital and that is the single thing that you focus on, you've got a very high chance of, of breaking your whole, your whole goal of achieving wealth. The reason for that is because what if it doesn't grow? And what if you've still got a cash flow liability? You're essentially operating on hopium, you know, buy and hope strategy. And also, you're not giving yourself any liquidity. If you swing completely in the opposite direction, the complete opposite and go, what if I only go for cash flow? 
you you almost can't you almost can't break your portfolio because it's going to be producing more income than it uses. The caveat to that is that in both scenarios, you want to be buying at least quality assets in quality locations. Because if you were to buy a, a, a rundown wooden shack in the middle of the bush somewhere because it's 22% yield, but it never rented and it was going to fall down and all of that kind of stuff, that wouldn't be a smart cash flow decision. Nonetheless, uh, nonetheless, if you apply those two broad, broad ideologies and go, should I go for cash flow or growth? For most people when they're starting out, typically their ability to accelerate their savings rate is very limited. Their ability to source additional capital is very limited. So we must focus on, a, on, a, on, a, on at least a moderate amount of growth. Now, we're, you know, what we are able to do is we're sort of able to have, we're, we're averaging about 15% growth in the first 12 months, which is great, right? And, but we're doing that with about 6% yield. And this is providing a really good capital opportunity. However, I talk to business owners and it's like, well, if I just need more capital, I can find a way to either generate some more revenue or pull some more money out of the business and apply it that way. And it's a very different conversation. Isn't that interesting? There's something I want to break down before I want to come back to that comment. In, yeah. in your idea, you've mentioned that you know if you're someone with a low savings rate, growth is the thing that will actually help you get to the next property. So yeah. if you're in that category, growth and cash flow, the both, yeah. is a requirement of you progressing past one or two properties. Yeah. Conversely, if you went extreme cash flow, you bought properties and we're going to pretend they just don't grow, they just stay the exact value. Yeah. What becomes the challenge then? Is it just how quickly you can get the cash to get that next deposit? Like what becomes yeah. the problem? Yeah, so there? if there was like a zero growth rate and it didn't yeah. appreciate it all or if it was zero growth rate, then it would again, you would again have the same issue. You would still then need to then save up, right, for the next deposit, right? So these are, we're talking about asymmetrical scenarios because in one, in one you'll have the compounding effect of growth and the other one you'll have essentially, uh, you know, static real growth in revenue in line with inflation, right? So they're kind of, they're going to operate at two very different speeds. Your cash flow will not increase at the same rate that your capital will in that scenario. Um, but you would still have the same, you, you would have to flip it around the other way. If you focused on growth only, you'd be stuck in a position where you might not even be able to use any of that equity and it could be dead equity that you can't touch because you can't redraw on that, borrow more against it and claim that equity back to then go and reuse it. Flip it around on the other side where you might not actually have the growth in the cash flow, but you can use all of it. You can use 100% of it all the time because it's cash flow. So it's a risk reward balance rather than Rather than which one makes me more money, it is what is going to give me the greatest levels of liquidity and the greatest levels of opportunity. Now, I wouldn't advise, all of that being said, I would not advise people to just go for cash flow in most cases. However, if you have a good amount of capital or if you have the ability to generate a good amount of capital, it can actually be the thing which really solves a lot of problems. I find this, and this is probably the, one of the things I think business owners particularly need to look into. If you said to me, Charlie, I need you to go get a hundred grand, like the wiring in my brain isn't, oh, I'll go buy a property and grow a hundred grand in equity. It's sweet. I'll just go do business activities that I know how to do and we'll get a hundred grand. Mm. Like I think there is an ability or a mechanism within us. And maybe this is a control thing. Maybe it's an understand thing because I can look over that, but it just seems like the logical path. It really does. Because mm. here's the thing as well. Uh, and again, I don't want people to misunderstand this and say that I think that cash flow is cash flow is king and it's the only thing you ever need to do because I think that I really do think that if people don't focus on 
getting a balance in their portfolio. So growth and cash flow and the ability to add value. I'm never going to deviate from that set of principles because it's proven to be so true for so long. But you've got to think about a you've got to think about asset diversification as well. Now, if you have um, ten properties that are very high cash flow uh, and ostensibly low growth, say three percent growth or something like that, you're still going to have ten properties which are going to be growing at you know three percent. So, uh, to a certain degree, once you can get to a point where you have more properties in your portfolio, focusing on growth becomes less important because at the end of the day, at the end of the day, what most people want is they want cash flow. Like in fact, since I started doing this, I have never actually found a single person. When I ask, why do you want to invest? Every single person says, because I want to be able to retire early, leave my job, do whatever. They want cash flow. They want the ability to go and do what they want, when they want, with who they want. And the requirement of that is that they have a supplementary or alternative or completely replaced income stream. Now, income streams come from cash, cash flow, cash flow. That's how you get money to spend at the bank. It doesn't come from equity. So as much as equity is important, the value of equity and the value of growth and the value of even capital, um, capital acceleration activities such as small developments or other ways that you can chunk deals, other ways that you can increase your capital, the function is to increase your capital to move those into cash flow assets. Now, you've got different types of cash flow assets, different stability ratios and all of that kind of stuff, but that's kind of the function. Now, to a certain degree, once you get past a... Uh, tipping point. I don't know exactly what that tipping point is before you ask, but once you get past a certain point in your portfolio, by sheer volume and diversification of location, type, and space, you should get enough growth within your portfolio to be able to keep that moving forward, provided you have enough cash flow. If you don't have enough cash flow, it doesn't matter whether you've got 10 properties, you won't be able to keep moving forward. I want to ask a, a, an interesting question to lay this. I, I feel like one of the things that's letting me down or has let me down with property the most is that I seem to internalize this idea you just buy a property and hold it forever. So like, all right, we get this one. It's property number two. All right, I've got this one and this is with me forever. Like there's no possibility that asset could change. Um, I've got this like accumulator mindset, yeah. um, which I imagine is pretty common to be honest. Oh, yeah. Now, what I want to kind of bring this back to is an idea or something for you to either blow out and say, Charlie, that's a terrible idea, or lead into and say, that's genius. We'll see which way. Um, is maybe we need to re, re what is, oh, what's the word I'm going for here? Rethink the approach here to make it more like a business. And I'll use an example. I was uh, checking in with the Tesla battery day uh, oh, yeah. yesterday, which is quite fascinating. So, so fascinating. And I was looking at the moves Elon Musk is making with his company now that it's at this stage. Like he's kind of cracked through so many of the barriers where they're looking at things like vertical integration now. So it's like, well, we're not going to buy, um, you know, lithium from this company anymore. We're just going to buy that company. And then that's how we're going to drive down our costs. And I wonder if we need to rethink in property, like it's kind of the same thing, but in a business sense, like if you're earlier on in that journey, you might outsource your accounting or you might hire an accountant internally. So when it comes to actual portfolio design, you really shouldn't be trying to build the thing that you're going to retire on or is useful to you 20 years from now. You really need to be building the asset for a business, your property business in this case, that will get you to those stages to make those moves later on Mm. rather than just a pure accumulation and cash flow mindset. How do you feel about that? I, I wholeheartedly agree. We kind of touched on this in the, in the last episode. Business goes in phases and so does portfolios. You know, the, 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 the idea of, you know, buying a 
$5 million shopping complex, which yields at 10% uh, net. It's fantastic. Sounds awesome. Sounds awesome. But it's probably a really dumb idea for a lot of people. Just in the same way that if you decided that you wanted to um, enter into the the um, electric ba- electric car battery space, you probably your first move is probably not going to be to go and buy a lithium company. It's probably not going to be the first move. Now, in business, and this this applies for um, you know new entrepreneurs, lifestyle entrepreneurs, and as we sort of go up, you do you have these phases where you go, okay, look, I'm going to outsource because you know, not only my skills don't allow me to necessarily train someone, I'm, I'm seeking the skills attribution to my business. Um, I, you know, the, 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 I'm going to, you're going to end up spending more money. You're going to, you're going to outsource to get the skills that you need to help you get to that next phase to give you the, the, the understanding that you need to move through the different phases, but it's actually not the most profitable way of doing it. Now, at a certain point, you're going to then switch to more fixed costs rather than variable costs. You're going to have more full-time employees versus contracted employees. And you're going to go through a different phase because then what's going to happen is when you can create better stability and you've got, you can increase your revenue per fixed cost basis, you'll increase your profitability in your business. And the same thing goes in your portfolio as well. Now, as at, you, you mentioned investing in verticals. Now, I know business owners who are... Uh, have office-based businesses, you know, 30, 40 staff uh, and more. And so their, one of their real estate investments was, well, why don't we just buy the office space and rent it back to their investment vehicle, which then the cash flow from their office space as a commercial rental to their own investment vehicle funds then their equity purchases and vice versa. There's a lot of really interesting things you can do that way when you start investing and thinking about how to invest in different verticals within the business as well. So I think there's kind of a a few different ideas to unpack there. But one of the things that I would say is is that as you kind of astutely pointed out, there are different stages, right? So to just say that arbitrarily, arbitrarily, if you happen to have an ABN, then the only thing you need to go for is cash flow. It would also be you know, misguided advice. Um, Nonetheless, though, if you're at a certain point in your business stage, if you've reached a certain point in your business, you know, development and evolution where you can, you know, uh, maneuver, reallocate, redistribute, create, you know, sizable equity or cash contributions to your portfolio, the need for growth really starts to diminish. I love this thinking, Goose. It just comes back to the whole premise of why we wanted to do this series is because if you are a business owner, this game is just so differently or there are different paths available to you that the um, other side of the world, those employees, just can't do or many can't do, I should say. Yeah, totally. I mean, look, so we obviously have a broad range of clients. You know, we have clients who don't own businesses. We have clients who are like – in their early 20s, just starting out and they've scraped together their first $40,000 for a deposit, but they really want to get ahead and all of that kind of stuff. Boom, that's sick. That is awesome. That's so good. We also on the other end of the spectrum have business owners who have got multi, multi, multi million dollar companies uh, operate in multiple continents and all of that kind of stuff. And they are in a very different, they're just a totally different, it's a totally different strategy. And it's not just a different strategy because you're like, oh, well, uh, well, one has got more money than the other. Oh, yeah, what are you saying? It's just, it's all good if you've got heaps of cash. It's, no, it's, it's strategically different. Now, when I say it's strategically different, the asset allocation, asset selection is going to be wildly, wildly differentiated for a variety of different reasons. So, for example, if we have, we have 
And some business, some of our business owners that work with this, they go, look, we've got at the moment $5,000 a month we can take out of the business. So that's about $60,000 a year. Now, the average uh, employee is not saving $60,000 a year. Now, some people listening to this will be like, oh, dude, I save, you know, me, and, me and my wife, me and my partner, we save 60 grand a year. Dude, that's awesome. That's sick. But when we look at the, the average savings rate, it's like 800 and whatever, $862 a month. All right, so when we look at the averages, you, I would say you're above average if you're doing that. Now, the asset selection for someone who's, who's contributing $60,000 a year to their portfolio versus someone who is contributing $5,000 a year to their portfolio, because we have these people as well. They've managed to save up for the deposit. And that, you know, the strategy for them is capital growth is going to build my next deposit and then I'll refinance the, cap, the cash flow out. That's totally cool. It works. We call that fractal economics. That's how it works. And it's totally, it's, it's totally great. You know, you can use one property to buy another. And in fact, when you look at the total dollar ROI, because you're using much more leverage, the actual ROI is significantly higher than if you add a lot of cash contributions, but cash flow is going to be lower. So what you tend to find is that your return on investment and your cash flow are um, on a bit of a seesaw. But my point being that for that strategy, that's one thing. Then you've got someone who maybe is contributing $60,000 a year and we're going to go through a phase where we're going to need to go for capital appreciation type stuff to get that capital up to a point that then we can start thinking about how to move further into cash flow. Because again, most people, most people have a cash flow target. Not, not, not that many people have an equity target. Some people may say like, oh, look, I'd like my portfolio to be able to buy my dream home in five years. And in fact, for a lot of people, that is the target. In five years' time, I want a $2 million or a $3 million dream home. So how can I build a portfolio that's going to do that? The caveat is usually I also want $150,000 a year income. So it's still a cash flow target. Does that kind of answer your question in some way? I sort of went on a bit of a ramble. It does, but I want to talk about something, a little point you made on top of that as well, which yeah. is um, equity redraw. Yeah. Because I, I really think this is so, so fascinating that kind of plays into this conversation. Um, earlier in the week, we were discussing uh, my own portfolio and I was uh, using the idea that I could take some equity out of a property and put it into another one. And yeah. you highlighted something that I hadn't actually thought about of just how that affects cash flow because it's not new money coming into the portfolio. And I really, really have started to come around to the idea that as a business owner, I'm actually better off if I can create new money, it's going to be substantially better off from bringing in new money from my business than trying to pull equity across because every time I use equity, I actually increase my debt. So I was wondering if you could speak into that idea a little bit more and having people understand how that affects the yield of an overall portfolio. Totally. Because I think it's a misunderstood metric in a very, very big, big way because a lot of people go, well, man, I've got all this equity in my home. That means I'll just draw down equity out of my home and I'll just go buy something else, which is totally cool. And it's kind of how the whole system works. Forgetting the fact that that's going to increase your debt and repayments, right? So what a lot of people find is that they will maybe try and build a property portfolio and they'll use debt and leverage without factoring in what is my whole portfolio liquidity or cash flow looking like and they can end up putting themselves into a negative cash flow position and slowly corrode their ability to borrow and get to where they want anyway and reduce their cash flow amount. Now, as I kind of touched on just a second ago, it depends what you're optimizing for. Because if you're optimizing for return on investment, then it's a great move. 
it's a fantastic move, right? Because if you if you just apply this to its uh, to its simplicity, if you take sixty thousand dollars and go buy say a three hundred thousand dollar property, and it grows and it has enough cash flow, you re- you recycle the equity out of that and you buy another one, and that grows and you recycle the equity out of that and you buy another one, and so on and so on and so forth, you can end up with like a you know a five thousand percent ROI in ten years. By nature of the fact, you only initially put in sixty grand, and now you've got you know a couple of million dollars worth of property. So that's how that plays out from a return on investment perspective. Now, return on investment is an extremely important metric to measure because that's what's going to allow you to understand the efficacy of the capital that you're allocating in anything, like capital being time and money. So how much energy and effort am I getting and what's the reward? That's a return on investment calculation in my view. Now, from a cash flow perspective though, that is not as good. Because as you increase your debt, you increase your liabilities. And so by liabilities, I mean your net operating expenses. So to offset that, you need to continuously seek higher yields anyway. Now, if you, if you, if, let's say you've got a 6% yielding property uh, and it's on principal and interest payments, it's probably going to be producing around about, let's, say, let's call it $1,000 a year net cash flow if it's a uh, $350,000 property. If you then go and recycle, if, you go, if that property go, goes up by 15% and then you go and take another 10% out for the next deposit, you're probably going to go into negative cash flow territory, which means that in order to maintain portfolio cash flow, you will need to offset that cash flow with your next purchase, which ostensibly means you'll need to get a higher cash flow purchase for the next one. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, and I suppose there's a couple of other factors to consider. You you could make this move hypothetically here if it's an option. So let's say you do this and you go into negative cash flow. Yep. One way to, I suppose, counter this though is to, again, just gradually pay down that debt to move it out and then also rental increase. So yep. if the rent did go up in the next year by 10 bucks, that would help counter that as well. So you could almost, as an idea, if you were willing, and I, I'm just not willing, it doesn't suit my style, but I can see how that could be a strategy if you were very, very limited to know that it would change over time. Well, yeah, totally. So to expand on the basic concept of how increasing your debt decreases your cash flow, what actually happens with the cash flow positive property given enough time, and if you looked at it in a microcosm of one property, is it's going to pay down its own debt anyway, and it's going to produce more income. Now, as it pays down its debt, it's actually going to produce more net income because the repayments are going to be lower. And also, as rents increase uh, in line with inflation, rents will go up, debt will go down, and slowly the jaws open between between your debt amount and your capital amount. You will, your capital amount will increase, and your debt amount will decrease, and your cash flow will increase. And that's what happens on a per property basis over time. And this is how you can increase your cash flow significantly. You know, even even if you just bought one property and just had it as a standalone asset over ten years, you might go from uh, like a thousand dollars a year cash flow to to seven to ten thousand dollars a year cash flow, depending on the yield and the situation and the paydowns and all of that kind of stuff. So it's a very very powerful thing to consider, and to that degree, you can stack properties on top of each other if you have the capacity to do that. But in order to stack properties on top of each other and let that beautiful thing happen, because it's an, it's an amazing effect that. Um, it's actually, it's actually a flywheel effect because as it pays more of itself down, it increases its ability to pay more of itself down and continuously speeds up the rate at which it produces more cash flow. So it's a beautiful flywheel effect on a single property basis. Where you break that system though is when you start going, let me scrape out more capital, let me scrape out more capital, let me scrape out more capital. So to counter that, to counter that, if you have another way to create more deposits, 
or purchase more assets without doing equity redraws, that's going to increase your holistic cash flow position and will create an even more powerful flywheel effect across your whole portfolio. If you can then, to that point, if you're a business owner that can produce uh, cash flow or bring new money into the things, are you better off just simply creating new deposits and not using equity or is equity still an integral part of building a good portfolio? I would say that that depends on what the goal is. So it depends on timeline, outcomes, you know, what are the objectives and key results, the OKRs of the portfolio. So, and it depends on the time, yeah, it depends on the time frame on which you want to look at it as well. So for example, I recently did some portfolio modeling on someone on a business that has quite a lot of cash flow to contribute to their portfolio. And whilst in the early basically the first half, I was looking at a 10-year window. In the first half, I was like, let's just push cash into the properties. Let's just put cash into, pro- into the properties and create the projects. Um, and then as we started modeling to go into higher cost, but also much higher reward projects, it made sense to start using the, the equity and actually scraping a lot out of the portfolio because the net benefit was a couple of orders of magnitude larger than the, than the uh, impact. And that's, the, that's, I think, where you need to start, how you need to start thinking about it to that degree. So if you had a choice, if you had the capacity to, you know, put $100,000, $150,000 a year, um, you know, or whatever in, into your portfolio and not have to draw down the equity, then, and your goal was cash flow, then that would probably be a better idea it's just going to also then depend on what the goal is over what period of time because the speed at which you can do that is obviously going to be dictated by the speed at which you can contribute, contribute capital to your portfolio, which is why there is the benefit of drawing down equity because, again, you've got the compounding rate of return that is still going to be producing. That's basically you've got workers out there that are producing more and more equity and capital for you. So you can use all of that and dig it all out and decrease your cash flow as long as you've got a strategy to replace that cash flow either in the short, medium or long term. I feel like there's, um, to give you context here, and obviously like I, I am the beginner in this journey. I'm, the, I'm not someone who has the experience on the board like you, Goose, that understands it. But the way you explain that is kind of like I feel like I'm sitting on, we'll call it an excavator. I used to dig once upon a time, didn't mind an excavator. <laughs> but I feel like I'm sitting in this excavator and there's all these different levers, right, which yeah. there are. And depending on which one I pull, a different thing moves. Yeah. And that might be fine in certain things, but it's really, if you don't understand the goal of what you're trying to do, if you really aren't clear on what the objective is you're going after, then any one of those moves can be good or bad. Yeah. Like all of them. It's like you, you might use your equity, so, you know, left arm, boom out. But then it, actually the uh, digging you need to do, that's actually the worst move ever for the goal. Yeah. Because now I can't get my arm into that right position and I'm going to have to make adjustments or move other things that might be a lot more work to get to that same outcome from here. Yep. And much like a business, bringing this back to business, if your goal is to produce more net cash and you do that through investing in bigger plant and offices and things like that, it might actually destroy your cash because your whole payment structure could go wrong. Or if you already own a building and you start pulling equity out of the building you operate within to buy more equipment, it might seem like a really good idea to increase cash, but you've also increased your repayments. Totally. So, it's an interesting, interesting lens to view it. Totally, because there's also a lot of moving parts. You, you're right. You're 100% correct. You know, am I, 
it, oh, hang on, we need a pile of dirt over here. I'm on my excavator. We need a pile of dirt over to my right. Okay, so do I go and dig a hole on my left and dig up the dirt and move it over there onto my right? But then that's only going to create a hole on my left. Do I need to then go and fill that? Is the solution to dig the dirt out of the out of the ground on my left to move it and to build a pile on my right? Or do I call and order a dump truck full of dirt? Right? And that's the differentiation between the two different kind of things. Now, depends. The answer depends. If you need a pile of dirt to go over there on your right because there's a burning diesel fire and it's about to get out of control and you need to smother it with something, you can't wait for a dump truck to come with dirt to dump it on top of it, and you're gonna, yeah, you could solve a real big problem and it could actually help you do something a lot faster. But this is the thing that you've, you've got to consider: why am I doing it? What is the impact? And like, what is it? What is the goal? What am I trying to achieve? Because without understanding not only the implications but also the the intention of your actual actions. All we have is mindless activity. Now, mindless activity is not going to get any business owner anywhere. I've- I just got to pause for a second. I know so many business owners doing mindless activity. They're busy getting nothing done. Man, it is. It, I got to say, it is the bane of my, it is the bane of most business owners. It is the bane of most business owners. I don't feel like I'm doing enough. Therefore, I'm just going to get real busy. And in fact, unless I'm busy and stressed out, probably means it's not working. The business is broken. Now, a lot of a lot of a lot of people apply that general methodology in their own life, and it's the same thing that goes like real, real estate is just a business. It is just a business with different moving parts. It is conceptually no different from an e-commerce store. You've just got different moving parts. And I think that, that if we can take these kind of ideas and transfer them across, it's going to be very important. Now, here is the other thing to think about. Here's the other thing to think about. Sometimes, and this is the reason, this is the reason that we need to build up stability within a portfolio rather than just chasing the big ticket items. Now, let's talk about a big ticket item right now. We might talk about something like building a rooming house. Now, building a rooming house sounds great. So it's going to cost you about a million bucks. It's going to be about 14% yield. Oh, yeah. It's, it's like it's exciting and all of this kind of stuff and it's going to produce a lot of cash flow. But the problem is that kind of project will take about 14 months and it will have a lot of operating and holding costs whilst you create it. So actually what you do is you create a J-curve, um, J-curve kind of business model within your overarching portfolio where you're going to have a lot of capital allocation, negative cash flow, and then the end result is going to go whoosh and race out and race up and start. You actually manufacture equity, you'll manufacture a lot of cash flow and it's really fantastic. However, however, as we've talked about in, in the past, if you, unless you know what you're getting into, you could invest in the wrong type of business and you could find yourself going bankrupt because you haven't prepared for the depth of the J curve. You haven't, you haven't got the capital required to tolerate the downturn in that, in that cash flow cycle. Now, cash flow cycles are, are what kill businesses. It's cash flow cycles which, are, which stop people being able to pay bills and send them bankrupt. It's not necessarily, but they've got a great business and they've got loads of good, really, really great clients. I'm making a million dollars a year, but if the cash flow cycle is out of whack, you ain't going to have any money and you won't be able to keep the doors open. You could have a $20 million windfall right on the horizon, but if you don't manage your cash flow to get to that point, you'll never get there and you'll never get the $20 million. You'd be like, oh my God, but I'm so close and it won't matter. So this is why even for advanced stage portfolios and all of that kind of stuff, it's critical to have that, still have that foundational base in there. I don't know. I don't, I've never found a scenario where it wouldn't be beneficial to make sure you've got a foundational base in there for stability, for diversification, for you know capital appreciation, for liquidity benefits, and all of that kind of stuff, and to give yourself that wider footprint. All right, I got. I got to ask this, and I may have just caused myself a lot of work in asking this, but I'm prepared. 
in business, to your point here, if I was going to tackle the endeavours we're talking about, right, so yep. literally let's pretend my business right now is going to buy a rooming house. Yep. If I was going to tackle that as a business person, do you know what really helps me engage and understand and be prepared for that type of thing? Is a dashboard and my financial reports that I get every month. Mm-hmm. So in my business right now, I'm very, very fortunate that I hit the entrepreneurial jackpot and my partner is an accountant. I get the best financial reports and absolutely I will credit her immensely, Bianca is her name, thanks babe, um, to a lot of the success we have because we understand our numbers just so, so well. However, I don't have that in property. I don't have that guidance system or anything in the same degree. And I'm wondering from your point of view, do you think that starts to become a necessity here? Is this a missing link that business owners need that same guidance system if they're going to go into property portfolios so they can feel more comfortable and understanding in their decisions? How does this next purchase affect cash flow? What does it do for my receivables? Should I be using equity or do we need to bring new capital in? Like, is this the missing bit of vagueness in my own life and probably many other people's? Well, I don't want to sound ambiguous, but it depends. Right? <laughs> it always depends. It, all, it, all, it always depends, right? Because let's think about it like this. If you were if you were starting a $20 million enterprise and you were seeking funding and capital and you're going for a huge amount of investment and all of that kind of stuff straight out of the gate, would it be extremely important for you to have developed a clear understanding of your business plan, models, methodology, forecasting and stuff? Probably. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, right? However, if you're just starting and you're just starting and you've decided, you know what, I'm going to become a uh, personal trainer, right? What do you think the most important thing that a personal trainer could do is? If they're a startup? Yep. Probably marketing and sales. Yeah, exactly. Just get started. Just go and just get started. Like just get into it. Go and find someone and say, go and find as many people as you can and say, hi, I'm a personal trainer and I'm just starting and I would love to know if I could help you get fitter and healthier and this is how it works and you know, let me sell you basically. All right, so, so the most important, don't waste any time on a business plan. Don't. Just go and go, look, I've got a product I'm going to take to market. Ready, fire, aim. That is the most important thing for most businesses. And to that degree, I would suggest that it's a kind of similar perspective to take on your portfolio because as long as you follow some basic principles at the start, you can't really go too far wrong. And by the start, I mean like even for the first couple of purchases, you know, cash flow, positive, good growth area, ability to add value in time. It's really simple. You know, so if you if you were to say to me, like, is it imperative that you have a very comprehensive dashboard, visuals, uh, business plan and fully thought out methodology and all that kind of stuff before you get started? No, no, I don't think that. I just don't think that's true. However, once you've kind of got your foot in the door, you've like got a couple of projects going on and now you're going, okay, all right. Now I'm, I'm, I'm in the door. I've got things going on here. Where is this ship going to go? That's the time to start getting strategic. That is the, start, that is the time to start going, okay, well, what's going to happen three purchases from now? What's going to happen, you know, in four purchases from now? Now, no one's got a crystal ball. What if your cash flow dries up? What if you can't contribute as much to your portfolio each month? All of this kind of stuff. But to a certain, but to a certain degree, you need to plan. It's like not having. It's not. It's like not planning your cash flow cycle within your business and going. Well, I've got no idea how much money I'll make next month, so I'll just hope. 
And that doesn't work either. But I can tell you that in the early stages of your business, it doesn't really matter what's going to happen next month, except for the fact you need to go out there and market and sell your business. Because otherwise, you're not going to serve anyone. You're not going to get any cash flow. You're going to die. So it's kind of the same thing. Now, is there an exact amount? Is it like just haphazardly take action for the first four? No, it's not that specific. It's going to depend on what your real plan is. Because if your plan is like, look, I've got enough cash to buy one property this year. And, I'm, and you know what? I'm not even going to think about buying another property for another 12 months. All right, let's get into it. Let's go get your property and let's get something that's going to work, serve you and definitely not stuff you up. Cool, simple. Second property, yeah, awesome. But if you've got someone who's going, I actually think I can maybe buy five properties this year or how I've got all of this capital. How fast can I go? Or... What happens if I start adding more and more money? If you start asking those kind of questions, that's the time to start getting strategic. It's a risk analysis reward as well because you know, if you're going to start uh, allocating that much energy resource, and when I say energy resource, I mean time, energy, money, like energetic force in, in a direction, you need to have an idea of what the outcome might be, even understanding that your best laid plans are likely to be incorrect. But at least if you take the time to build that dashboard and go, ah, that's what it looks like. And we actually do that. We actually do that in-house. We we build those kind of plans, you know, 15 property, 10-year uh, portfolio plans to create those dashboards. And I've had those situations where I've had those people going, I think I could buy five this year. Should we just go at it? Should we buy a $250,000 property or a $1 million one? And even though I have the experience to know a good property from a bad one, even I am going, well, you know what? We might be better to actually plan this out and create a dashboard so that we can actually see what the impacts of the port on the portfolio are. And to that degree, I've actually been doing that a lot. And I've been finding situations where I'm like, yeah, we can afford to, we can afford to do a boarding house and a development and, and buy two duplexes and do all this kind of stuff. And oh, hang on a second. If we do all of that too quickly, even though they might have the cash to be able to do it, we might get ourselves into a negative cash flow position of say 60 grand a year. But it's only by planning and building dashboards that you can see that and you can forecast where the dips in your cash flow cycle are going to be. So you can either prepare for them or avoid them. Fascinating answer. Not the answer I expected at all. So it's kind of like, and I'll use the, the uh, classic Russell Brunson, uh, it's kind of like mm. if, you, if you're if you just getting started and it's a, a hobby business, you know, a little P&L every now and again is probably enough to get you by. You don't need mm. to take it too seriously. But in I'll say this year particularly because of the world events, like I have never used – a budget and actual so much because I feel so responsible for making sure that we pay our 20 plus employees uh, in Valor Media. And I look at this and go, the responsibility and risk of not getting that right, not meeting payroll if something goes wrong or anything like that has completely shifted. And it's almost like every employee is like a property in this game. It's like once you start getting enough of them, the impacts of doing things really can jeopardize the uh, ability to make it all work. Mm. So you've got to treat it very, very differently. At what point do you start getting serious about this? If you look at yourself right now and you go, look, I just want to get one or two properties. Is that the, the part where you go, okay, well, you definitely need like to do your annuals and maybe a quarterly check-in, but you don't need to have a dashboard or check-in on your weekly stuff. But no. Is it past five where this starts getting to be more important or is it number of properties? Is it volume? Is it rent? Like, how do you think about it? I would say I would say that it I would say that I'm not sure if there is a defining point other than like you know you could you could ostensibly say after two but it depends on it depends on the intention 
Because if you're like, right, well, I'm going to buy two and then seven years later, I'm going to buy a third one. And it's like, it probably doesn't matter a lot, right? You could probably just let you as you do, do, do biannual check-ins. What's the value? Is it going up or down? Do I need to take any evasive action? What's happening here? Should I increase rents and all of that kind of stuff? It's very low maintenance. But if you buy, uh, you know, and I had this conversation very recently with, um, uh, with a with a very frequent listener of this podcast, actually, uh, he and he just needs to get started. He he's like, I really want to know the plan. I want to be able to see it. He's one of those people that's just like, I know I want the spreadsheets and I want the where's this going to go. And I said, but here's the thing, we can do that. But what's actually most important for you right now is just to start. So let's just start with something that's going to work. Now we can then use that as the as the starting point for the plan. But to just create a plan without any basis on reality is to kind of it's kind of a little backwards so to, to totally, mo- totally to your point the, both property and business is not a game that lends itself to thinking oh we can plan out what exactly five years from now will look like Ca- case in point the world this year like did anyone have that on their map yeah exactly <laughs> you know vision vision boards and and all of that kind of stuff are awesome but what really comes down is to is like, what are we going to do now? You know, like, am I going to try a VSL funnel in the business? Should I, you know, like whatever, what's the thing that I'm going to do right now to generate what I need right now? What is the strategy that I'm going to implement for the next quarter? You know, and these kind of things, you don't need to, you don't do a, you're not going to sit down and dedicate one week out of every quarter to planning out the next quarter. You're going to dedicate a day or maybe two days and depending on the size of your business and the complexities to make sure you're strategically in the number of employees. You know, but the reality is you, there is a point at which you're going to need to decide which way the business is going to grow. Because if you, if you grow a business and you grow it to $2 million a year and say, let's say five employees and you're cool and that's it. And you're like, yeah, I don't need to grow the business anymore. And I'm going to operate this business for the next 10 years and I'm going to take 30% off the table uh, every year and um, and then after 10 years, I'm going to close the business and happy days, it's all good. You might not, you might want to get better dashboards so that you can make sure that nothing's going wrong, but you're not really going to be needing to think about what levers can I pull to make this 10x or 5x or 7x in the next few years because that's not the plan. So it's really going to come down to, that's why I say it comes down to intention. You know, if your goal is how can I go, how can I redline this thing? Like how can I go as fast and get as much out of this as possible? Then it's going to make a damn lot of sense for you to start thinking about what that's going to look like because otherwise you're just going to end up racing down a freeway in your Ferrari and crashing because you forgot to turn the corner because you didn't plan. You know, vice versa, if you're, if you're just going to the shops, chuck on the shoes, go for a walk down the street and if you forget something, it's probably only a five-minute walk, just go back again. She'll be right. Yeah, I do I- Absolutely. That balance just becomes so imperative when you're on this journey. You can't plan it out exactly. You really, really can't. You've got to really, I suppose, not relax the reins, but that intention becomes so important. Mm. Now, Goose, is there any other topics you wanted to cover on this episode? Because we've covered a lot here, a lot of interesting. It certainly made me think about my own reporting here and maybe how much further into the future I need to plan and look at. Well, I think just as a side note, and this is something that I think every business owner is going to need to struggle with as well. I actually was having a, having a chat with a, uh, an operational accountant, actually. His name is Jason Andrew. I'm just going to give him a quick plug. He wrote a book called Stark Naked Numbers. And if you're a business owner and you want to get your head around business financials in Australia, it's a fantastic book. Like you, I, I highly recommend it. It's really, it's, 
this is the top in the top two accounting books I've ever read. Anyway, so I was having a chat with Jason Andrew uh, the other day about business and stuff. And he's like, oh, it seems to be a fairly common path for like business owners to, you know, kind of make some money and, and think about investing in real estate. And he's like, I just don't, he, so he said, I just don't really get it because why wouldn't you just, why wouldn't you just put the money back into the business? And why wouldn't you just keep growing the business? And I think it's, a, and I think kind of what we touched on here is a very interesting thing because you just like in your portfolio, you've got to think about what is the intention, you know, like what is, what is the goal? You know, and and what are we trying to do? Because you may have a goal in your portfolio to to build equity and sell it. You may have a goal to just purely create cash flow. But understanding when you want to apply different levers at different points is very very important. Understanding when to take money off the table. When should you invest more deeply in growing your business or increasing your profitability? Because you can increase your you can increase your net assets and also uh, increase your profitability significantly by investing in more team that's going to do more stuff and increase your profitability. So I just think it's a really interesting thing to think about, particularly with different people listening to this in different businesses. So for example, my brother's a farmer, my brother's a farmer, and uh, we recently had a conversation where he was like, oh man, the, the block of land next door is up for sale. So we had a really interesting conversation around this because that is both real estate and business directly because he was like, I can buy the land, real estate, and then I could operate my business, farming, and generate the cash flow from that. And so we kind of talked about this for like maybe a couple of weeks and then he came look and he said, no, you know what? I'm not going to do that because the, the, what will happen is whilst it may be a good financial move, it's going to increase the effort and risk because of the effort, the amount of time, energy and resource needs to be applied to that to get the reward versus if we applied a similar amount of capital into a, uh, like a cash flow positive real estate investment, so like a, a residential real estate investment, and to then and reap the rewards from that. So he's went, he actually made the decision, no, I'm going to keep my business the same size and then take money, rather than taking the money to grow my business, I'm going to take the money to grow my portfolio. What are your kind of thoughts on that general soliloquy? So the, the first thing that comes to mind is we need to do a whole episode on businesses that actually operate on real estate. I think there's a whole great. interesting dynamic on that and McDonald's being one of them, which yes. I think is an interesting one. Farming is another. I would say that, I mean, I will admit I do jump on uh, commercialrealestate.com.au and have a look around every now and again, but there's so many different ideas here like storage mm. um, and so many different ones are there and it just made me think that once again that's probably a whole different property business model. If you have a certain type of skill like farming, could be incredibly lucrative and is so, so different than what other people are doing. Yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree. Car parks are great for yield, by the way. Car parks, yeah, yeah, going by car parks is fantastic for cash flow. Um, it's just a, it's very, very super, super niche. Well, I think, I think the kind of interesting thing to, to think about is, is not only that, but it's, 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 you know, why, why you would do either activity, you know, and what the function of that activity is going to achieve. Because, for example, if you're in a, a marketing-based business as a – like so, so my brother is not – he's not a marketer. He doesn't need to market his business. He's got a, he's got a commodities-based um, agricultural enterprise. Now, for other businesses, they're going to be focused on marketing. And it's like, well, uh, hang on a second. I can, I can put $2,000 into ads, get $10,000 of revenue and make 30% net profit on that. So w w why wouldn't I just 
push money in that direction. Oh, hang on. So what you're saying, Goose and Charlie, is that if I make more money, I can put more money into my portfolio and get more cash flow. So should I, then it becomes a confusing dichotomy of like, hang on a second, do I focus on my business then to create more money or do I focus on my portfolio? I just think it's an interesting kind of challenge that I, that I believe a lot of people will, be, will kind of have. Because the, the question is, when do I take action on either and why would I take action on either? To the second thought I had on that. So the first thought I had was there's so many cool real estate businesses. The second one I would say here though is like we all look at this through our own bias a little bit. So mm-hmm. I would say that for, which I loved that book, by the way, uh, cash, the cash flow one, Stark Naked Numbers. Yeah. Um, I thought it was really, really interesting. For me in digital, right, pretty much I can't, it's harder for me to invest in hard assets than your brother who is in farming, for example. Yeah. So it's a very different experience for me from how I can spend money and how I can expand and also the risks that come with that. So this is where I think the business you're in probably plays a role as well. Mm. So I do love that your brother had the foresight to go, hang on, I've got to run a much bigger business if I buy this. Yeah. Because you're not just taking on the asset, you're taking on the liability of the business that goes with that. Yeah. So it's kind of like a mixed purchase. You're getting both asset and liability. Yeah. Um, Any, anytime you grow your business, that's the case though, right? Well, absolutely. And I would also say that businesses have efficiency. Mm. So we're at a, at Valor Media. It's like I'm at a really good size now where like the effectiveness of each person and the output we, we create is awesome. But if I hire more people, I need to hire another management. And it's like it actually increases or decreases efficiency and profitability in making that next hire. So I've got to be really well set up to do that and navigate it well. So for me at this point, it might not be the right time to do that where at other points I may elect to do that from there. So I'm kind of balancing the ideas of much like you would in property. It's the same conversation of like timing. When's what right for me? And there's nothing to say that if I, let's pretend I get another 10 properties and cash flow is booming and all the things go right, which I'm hopeful for. Why can't I take the cash flow from that and invest it in my business? Why does it have to exactly. be a one-way street? It's not. And this is, this, is, this is actually the most exciting thing that I think. Like property and business are one and the same and also different and paired together perfectly like wine and cheese. You know, they're, they're an amazing thing in the sense that you can, take, um, you can take resource from your business, use it in a real estate portfolio, which provides net benefit back to your business in a variety of ways, like in a, in a significant variety of ways. So some, some of the ways that could happen is that you could create better. So if you've got a digital-based business with very low assets um, and you have no ability to borrow money because you've got no, you've got no secured assets, you don't own any, you can actually create assets which will give you leverage to borrow, to do all kinds of other really cool things that you may want to do to grow your business, build a better team, expand, start investing in other stuff, fantastic. So that's a fantastic way you can take a cash flow business, turn it into assets and then have that net result. Vice versa, as your portfolio, as your property portfolio grows, not only will it provide those kind of benefits, but it can actually feed your business back. Like it can actually, you can actually start taking, start taking money out of your portfolio to fund your business. So rather than your business just funding your portfolio, your portfolio can fund your business, which creates another flywheel effect where your business will grow and it can put more money back in your portfolio and it starts to layer up like this. And in the middle is the business owner who suddenly created almost, if you imagine it like the infinity loop where one feeds the other and then the other and the other and the other. And it creates this environment where you have a lot of structural integrity and very low risk and very strong rewards. And you've got this business owner that's just sitting in the middle going, 
well, I, I'm de-risked no matter what happens. You know, my business can handle an economic downturn. My property portfolio is robust and resilient. Can also handle an economic downturn. What are my options? And that's what gives you the the ultimate freedom, like the complete uninhibited autonomy as a business owner. If you're only attached to your business, you've you've got one lever, and if that kind of trembles, then you've got to start taking evasive action pretty quickly. Vice versa, if you've only got your portfolio, you've got really probably no, not enough revenue streams or that kind of stuff. But if you've got both working together. You can actually do whatever you want. How much uh, easier would it be to do a startup if you had a property portfolio just pumping cash flow in? Like if you had someone covering your marketing costs oh, in those dude. early days. Dude, <laughs> Maybe Im- in my 50s, I will start another business now. <laughs> totally. Just, just, ima- just imagine that. Just imagine if you had a property portfolio, a significantly established property portfolio, and then you said, I want to start a business you probably wouldn't care about, you wouldn't be running around the streets going, hi, do you want to buy my products? Like frantic sales and marketing. You'll probably be, have the ability to be strategic and build a better business because you'd be able to think and spend time because you're not going to be frantically stressing about the cash flow requirements of your business because you'd be able to support it with your portfolio. It's such a, it's such a valuable component to the whole business stream. You play it in a diff- completely different way. Yep, indeed, indeed. What was your biggest takeaway out of this episode, Charlie? I'd love to know. Biggest takeaway. Uh, one, I need to do better financial reporting for my own portfolio. I want a P&L much like I have in my business for my property. I think I'm at that stage where that is merited because I'm trying to evaluate options. Yep. Uh, two is that if I get my property portfolio to a stage now, I'll probably use it to fund some sort of crazy startup in my uh, <laughs> later years. Uh, I'm definitely going to do that now. Yeah. <laughs> Awesome. I have this envisionment of uh, starting a cover band called The Has Beens. I'm an ex-musician. I'm like, you know, that's like my retirement. Go around and do the RSL tour. Nice. Um, so, I, look, we just got funding. We're set. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And these are the kind of passion projects that we can start to live out once we've actually created that level of uh, financial security. I think it's, it's so important, particularly with more people starting businesses today. But what so. about for you, Goose? What are you looking at here? Uh, what did I get out of this episode? Or How's it made you it, think differently about the whole arena of um, business and property and the overlap? Well, you know what? I think I kind of launched into a little bit of it at the start. You know, something that I've been thinking about a lot with our business owner clients is the differentiation between the necessity for growth and cash flow. You know, in a, in a scenario, you know, even looking at a farming kind of scenario where you may have a lot of equity built up in your land component, you know, a farming land typically is quite high value, grows very strongly. It's a very good capital um, kind of component. You know, but really thinking about what what is actually more important to business owners over the short, medium, and long term, depending on where they're at, and it, and it's actually transformed my view to some degree on how to approach those things differently. You know, so you know, I, I still ostensibly believe in in the three pillars. You know, growth, cash flow, and the ability to add value. And I think that you know the ability to focus on capital uh, acceleration assets at certain points in the portfolio are going to be the critical thing that allows the portfolio to move forward. But I think the biggest thinking shift for me has has really been opening that up and going, okay, well, at what at what income contribution level does it actually make sense to to kind of almost stop looking at growth? And that's a very challenging perspective for me because it's like, okay, hang on a second, how much does that challenge the existing status quo? And I think that's a really interesting thing to consider. I think it's a hugely important idea to consider, and I look forward to you coming up with that number. 
<laughs> just let me know. I'll work, I'll work on it. I'll work on it. I'll work on it. I'll work on it. All right, man. It's been a pleasure as always. I'm pumped already for next week. And uh, man, let's. Uh, there's so many more things we can dig into here. This some of the stuff that I want to talk about in future episodes is future planning, like superannuation and all of that kind of stuff as well. I really want to dig into that because you kind of touched on it uh, early in this episode. I was hoping we'd get to it in this episode, but there's just too much to talk about there. It's a big um, one. It's a big one. I really want to talk about future planning because. As we said at the start, most entrepreneurs don't have a very clear and very well uh, planned or you know, potentially even positive looking uh, retirement future. And I want to talk about that in a meaningful way uh, for business owners because I am one and most of my friends are them and I really care about making sure that we all retire well. So let's do that as well in a future episode. But for now, let's wrap it up. 